Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my land. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. The glasses hold yards of iron chest. Hello, Mr. Hello, Mr. Hello, Mr. Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel and today we're going to be listening to the second part of an interview that I did with Gillian Armstrong. Gillian Armstrong, of course, is well known for her uh, My Brilliant Career, Little Women, many other films. But uh, her latest film is a documentary about Ori Kelly, the uh, three-time Academy Award winning costumer for uh, Hollywood during its golden era, what they like to call its golden era. Uh, the film is uh, The Women He's Undressed. Anyway, we'll uh, continue with our chat with Gillian Armstrong. Why do you like to go from uh, documentary to feature, feature to documentary? Why do you do that? Well, it's not actually planned. Um, they, I mean, I'm often a- approached and I think... Um, I think the floor, I mean I, the the um, the one about the the girls in Adelaide, you know, which is yeah, that's right. I was going to ask you about that. Smokes and lollies. The, that started the, with smokes, smokes and lollies, and, lollies. And, the, and was the first film you got paid for. It was my first paid job as a director, um, and I just got caught up in following their lives because I realised how lucky I was, and so I've followed their lives now for thirty five years. So that I so I. Start, that was, so that's a passion project, um, and I do it in between features. Um, I think I even did the second one, 14's Good, 18's Better, after my brilliant career, and then I remember I did the one I was going to do when they were 25, but I was shooting high tide that year, so I did when they were 26. Um, so that, as I said, um, and then over the years, you know, audiences started following their lives and would come to me and say, you know, are you going to go back and find out what's happened next? So that, that and I, as I said, it beca- it's become a wonderful story of three Australian women and their daughters, which has um, also caught the whole history and changes in our culture. Mm. Um, so that was special. Florence Broadhurst came along when I was actually waiting for finance for Death Defying Acts and we'd lost one act. So complicated getting finance together because it's so cast dependent and we had one actress attached and then she was pregnant and so it looked like it was going to be another six months and um, and the producer um, approached me with this story about this incredible woman, um, you know, who was a liar and a con artist, and um, <laughs> and who'd been murdered, and the murder hadn't been solved. It was so intriguing. Although I think she came to me for thinking I would do it for all the 
other reasons, like this was a woman achiever who was, you know, was a great artist, but I liked the fact that she was so bad. <laughs> that was what was so such great fun about Florence. And so I said to her, um, Sue Clothier, the producer, well, I've got this gap waiting for the film. I, I, I might be able to research it and shoot it. I might have to. But, but so basically she was willing to work around my schedule. And I also said, because it was very, very low money, if I do it, I have to have creative control. So that's the great joy of doing these documentaries, that um, I can play, I can have fun. I mean, they're tough. This one and Women He's Undressed, we had you know really restricted budget. We had to keep some money aside for all the stills and the clips and the trip to interview people in L.A. and New York. Um, so we had to be very inventive and and really shoot so fast all the other scenes with the actors and so on. Um, but I got a great team together and we just had fun because we could do whatever we liked. We didn't really have to report to anybody and say this is what we're doing. We didn't have to get all the memos from any of the thousands of executives. So there's a great creative freedom with those documentaries um, that um, make them, you know, they're hard to do but a great joy. Yeah, they would be. I'd imagine it would be so. The uh, Smokes and Lollies is really interesting. I've seen several of these and uh, I found them incredibly personal. Uh, Is it almost personally dangerous for the filmmaker to be involved so uh, uh, entirely with these women's lives? Because they're very active and very explosive type of characters, of course, because it's their real lives. And you're pretty fearless and you also appear to put your own character, your own... it's almost like a gossip. You, you actually, the last one I saw when uh, they were all in different modes and they're revealing themselves quite uh, well. And, you know, they're not always nice, these, these women, uh, mm-hmm. in their choices. Or when... Well, I think the interesting thing, they sort of, they set They the, don't mind, that's what I'm well, saying. Well, they, they set it, the, um, the framework when they were 14. They, when we approached them about being in it, I mean, I you know met them and loved them and they, they were so lively and outspoken and funny and they said we I said they said we will do this film which the premise was what is it like to be 14 today they said we'll do it as long as um we're you know we're going to be honest and I said well fantastic actually at one point I had to say to them look if you smoke on camera your parents will see that you know because they were secretly smoking and so um and we had to work out ways to talk about sexuality, like, yes. you know, what do other girls your age do or something. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the, fa- the, the first one was quite a breakthrough because at that time, for whatever it was, 35 years ago, um, filmmaking and documentary making was very formal. You know, if you think about how you see clips from old ABC documentaries, yeah, you know, the report, it was a male reporter in a suit, you That's know, right. who um, t- spoke with an Oxford accent um, so the fact that I was young, I had a you know young hippie crew, half of them women. The girls were very relaxed; they forgot about Beeve and being on camera. So I was later on absolutely amazed, and it was only it was a twenty minute sixteen mil film, so it was only sort of run in very small way. It wasn't broadcast everywhere, so it was still quite private for them. But I was. Th- I was really thrilled when I found out that it won an education award and that it was run to teach people who were dealing with troubled adolescents. And I realized it was the fact that I had them on camera being so honest. Um, They were troubled. You know, Diana had been expelled by then from, you know, six schools and was just at home waiting to find out, you know, Mm. where'd she go next. And one Um, of the parents had died, committed suicide? Well, that's the thing is that. 
when I went back to do the last one, which I think was about six years ago, and there are oh, she um, didn't know then, of course, that that was what had happened to her mum. Well, the, the the dilemma with a documentary filmmaker is how much do you give away? I mean, it's and there's incredible ethical and moral dilemmas. So over the years, I've fo- followed their lives and had to decide. You know, at one point, Diana was deciding whether or not to have an abortion, and you know, I didn't know whether do I even bring this up and so on. So. The last one that I did, which is called Love, Lust and Lies, which actually ran, That's at, the one I've seen ran here at the Nova. I mean, each time we put the old films in it. This time I thought now that they're, I think they were 47, in their late 40s, um, maybe I should go back over some of the early ones and ask them more. Things that I knew but I didn't put on camera because I was protecting them. For instance, I did know that Diana's... Um, mother had committed suicide and that she'd been brought up by a stepmother and didn't know and um so and that I knew that Josie mother had basically deserted the family you know left her and her three brothers with her father, father yeah. um so I went back over their some of their ch- childhoods and asked do you mind can we talk about this and ask them to fill in more of the picture and that's why you know it's, it has the Love, lust, and lie things that were lies or things that were secrets. Yeah, you've got wonderful titles. The titles are, t- are totally gripping and, and very Australian. Yes, well, I suppose there was always the thing about um, Kerry and Josie and Diana is that, and Ori Kelly too, they have a great sense of humour about themselves, a great self deprecating sense of humour, which I love. You know, they don't take themselves too seriously, which is a very Australian thing. Um, so those titles along the way reflected that with the Adelaide series, I suppose we call it now. How do you um, feel about, I was wondering about, you know, the idea of you having done Little Women, because I've read Little Women, and, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's a good read, but of course it's American, and uh, and it's interesting because it does focus, it tells the stories through the women, and when you're a person growing up, and you're, I was a big reader, an awful lot of the books you read, you pretended you were the male Lead <laughs> because there well, was a so little women you could pretend you but were. That's <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Which is what it's all about. Yeah, but but it is very American. How did you find that cultural shift? Because it is very quintessentially American, isn't it? Well, I spent a lot of time in America um, over the years. I, um, you know, lived there to do, for, for instance, my first American film, Mrs. Sofal. Um, so I had got, I mean, I've got to say when they first came offering me American scripts, that my first reaction was, how can, I just, how can I just walk in this country and make your stories because we're different? They don't realise we're different. No, that's they, funny, isn't it? Yeah, they, I mean, I think that's been one good thing about being Australian. We've, we've seen culture from all over the world and our broadcaster, you know, television, we'd, so we'd see the BBC and then we'd, and the commercial TV, we'd see Americans. So I, th- I think that, and the same with our music scene. I always thought it's why Australian um, rock and pop music was so good because we could see a bit of both and find our own in the middle. Yes. So it's it's one of the reasons why I think we adapt quite well to going there because we've also we've you know I grew up on American TV all those you know my flipper and you know Rin Tin Tin or whatever. Um, but so by the time that I came to finally just one of, that was one of the reasons that I did do Little Women because the producer said to me. Because I said, I've done this story. This is my brilliant career. And she said, well, 
But if you think about it, um, already my brilliant career was whatever, 10 years ago. There's a whole new generation. It's still a story that needs to be told. Um, and this is an American story. And uh, Well, they're, they're, it's a very bourgeois setting. I mean, my brilliant career is not very bourgeois, really. Well, actually, once I, you know, I'm now an expert on the Alcott family. They were, you know, intellectual rebels. Her father and her mother were with the the, the whole set that were in Connecticut at that time, the free thinking movement and so on, um, and were trying to bring up their family in a different way. That's why the whole thing is, you know, on Christmas Day, we take something to the poor and so on. We think of others. Um, they were um, shabby gentility because oh, they right. lost a lot of money. Because it's more like seven little Australians in my mind. In right. Some ways. Well, in the end, I thought from all my um, reticence to do another film about a young woman who wants to be a writer, <laughs> um, because obviously um, my brilliant career, that was semi-autobiographical there was the, the, yeah, don't think right. there was a Harry um, and that and the, the young girl who, who didn't fit in became Miles Franklin the that's writer right. and Little Women was also about a sensitive young girl who wanted to be a writer and she became Louisa M. Alcott that's right but she was terribly well supported by her family yeah, that's a well, big difference it is a difference and that's the key thing that I suddenly hit me halfway through the film is I'm not redoing my brilliant career about the young woman who wants to be a writer. I'm doing a story about family and about sisters. That's right. That's right. Family that, and sisters. That's what I got from it. It too. is that I. It was so. And I was brought up with five sisters, so ah, I suppose that's why. Ah. Uh, well, yeah. I have found that the most um, passionate audience for Little Women and letters that I had after it opened, uh, so often, were from young or older women who went to see it with their sisters and who said, I grew up with four sisters or, you know, I'm one of four sisters. I went to see it with my mother and my sisters. And um, because I realised that if you're in a family of four sisters, that was because probably after number four or five, that's when you, the, the parents gave up and went, okay, we'll stop trying for a boy. <laughs> you know, so, so um, but you know, I, I actually – I have one sister and um, love her very much and that was one of the things that attracted me to the story because I thought this actually is about love of sisters and, and family. And and I thought and, – and when I reread Little Women, because um, my memory of it was that, you know, it was sort of some old-fashioned clunky thing, she was – very, very honest, and you know mm, these. That's right. They were like, and that's what at the t- then I did all the research and found out it was breakthrough at the time because they weren't. Childhood used to be written in a really rosy fashion, and she wrote about these sisters fighting and one taking her other, you know, best sister's manuscript and throwing it in the fire and um and jealous of each other and pinching each other's boyfriends and you know there was sort of there was there was. A, they were so real and that's why it was such a breakthrough at the time. You know, she wrote about her own family. Isn't it interesting how things that become incredibly popular, like there's this overall view about uh, uh, society, but then the things that are thrown up and continue to be read or looked at and stuff like that are actually uh, tap into a reality which is often not part of the general story. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's very yeah, no, I have great admiration for Louisa. And, of course, after I'd made the film, I thought, because I always wondered about Miles Franklin writing My Brilliant Career at age 16 That's in right. 10 weeks in the bush. And, of course, the you know, bells went dong. Guess what? She read Little Women. Mm. Miles was, would have read Little Women That's right. and been influenced 
because mm. that was the first time that there she was in the bush and there was somebody else saying, why does it have to be like this? Why do I have to be married? You know, why do I have to always behave like a lady? Why am, am I not allowed to even run? I mean, women weren't allowed to run. This is uh, Showreel with Annie. This is Showreel and we're talking to Gillian Armstrong. This is the second part of uh, the Gillian Armstrong chat. Uh, this uh, Gillian Armstrong was in town, or maybe still in town, uh, because she's her latest film, The uh, Women He's Dressed, it, w- Women He's Undressed, is now showing at Palace Cinemas. It's an extremely uh, amusing film about uh, Ori Kelly, who uh, is uh, three times winner of the Academy Awards for costume. Uh, he was uh, very famous during the uh, golden years of Hollywood. So I had the chance to have a chat with Gillian Armstrong about uh, her film career and also about her latest film. So we'll continue with our little chat with Gillian Armstrong. Starstruck, I was very interested. and in, You were uh, at that time, and you weren't the only one um, uh, who had been courted by Hollywood after making My Brilliant Career, you decided that you were going to make an Australian story, Starstruck. Yes. Uh, and it's a lovely film, and I think it's undervalued. I, I mention it to people and they don't seem to have heard it. But uh, uh, why did you decide to... Uh, were you a bit nervous about going to the big world or was it something to do with bad Australian stories? Uh, I think that um, I... I... My Brilliant Career, we made, at that point, hardly any Australian directors went to Hollywood at all. I think, you know, it was probably maybe Bruce Beresford or Peter Weir might have finally gone. Um, So when I made My Brilliant Career, we had no expectations um, of it having international release. We just hoped it was going to do well in Australia. So then I was just knocked out, you know, when I got offers from all around the world um, and from stars. I mean, actually, I got an offer from Jane Fonda. Or the, I remember hearing her voice on my phone at, you know, at home in Balmain. I nearly fainted because um, she's got such a distinctive voice. Um, and, but I just thought, oh, no, no, I've, you know, I've just made my first feature. I had an incredible team that I work with in Australia and I know I'm still learning and I need to do my next film here, that it would be a huge thing to just, you know, go over there without the support team of my wonderful, um, you know, editor and first assistant. Actually, in the end, when I did go, I took them. Um, but at that point, so I want, and I also want to do something different because I was after my brilliant career. I was offered period films, and all the films I was offered about were about women achievers. And I wanted to show I'm not just the person who who loves my brilliant career. I, there's another side to me. I love contemporary music and so on. And I'd heard about this script through a few friends. I had to chase it and and literally beg David Elphick, the producer, to think of me because he already the same thing. Oh, she does those you know pretty dresses and you know lace and and horses and paddocks and um and I I happened to meet the wonderful writer Stephen McLean at a party and he liked my blue suede high-heeled shoes and said and I said I want to do your film I love this script and he went to the producer and said I've met Gillian Armstrong and she sounds great and that's how I got starstruck and it was such fun to do you know um, a, a rock musical and with you know, synchronized swimming we did we had we um, David Atkins who hadn't 
ever well, no one had done a musical on film in Australia at that time. So, uh, yes, he hadn't ever choreographed for a film. And we had to find, in the end, we found these um, water polo players, but they'd never danced. I mean, we just all these extraordinary. It's fantastic. And David had to teach them to, you know, do the synchronized swimming. Of course, later on, David went on to, you know, choreographed Olympics all around the world. Um, but he was so gifted right from the beginning. And, you know, we, we had school kids coming in for the final concert and we literally, each time we only had them for two hours hours and then that lot went and we got the next lot in they we told them all to wear black and white or something so they'd all seen the same and David had to go out and teach the next lot to dance in tune to starstruck those final concerts that we did which in you know we show the outside of the opera house but actually it was in the Seymour Center the actual theater in the end the actors that we employed to be pretend security guards of our boys who were playing the band had to be real because the the kids that came in in the end were so caught up um, they were trying to jump on the stage and hug them and kiss them and we had to tell the security actors to start holding the, the real, you know, the kids back. It was just um, well, incredible. It's full of energy and fantastic. Yeah. Are they going to re-release it? Or? They are, actually. Um, it's great. Uh, yes. Um, they're uh, rebalancing the sound now for like for contemporary um, so that, you know, because obviously te- technology has improved so much and it'll be, it'll become, there'll be a new um, digital print and it's also a Blu-ray. So, um, it was so successful that I heard that at the time that Joe Kennedy was uh, approached by Steven Spielberg to go to uh, Hollywood, which yeah. she didn't do. No, but... she did, and she had record offers, incredible. Yeah, yeah yes. It was, it was a really big deal. Um, that leads to this other question, which occurs to me, that you were obviously very canny about uh, uh, self-protection in relation to the business of filmmaking, because uh, you know that it's an emotional up-and-down affair. I mean, because there's the business and then there's the art. Well, I, I, I realised from the beginning that, um, that, you know, we were so lucky with my brilliant career. I mean, and I think um, in the end success, you know, you can do your best, but it's, it's just a fluke of timing of whether or not your film takes off with people. I mean, you've got to make something that, that works, but sometimes you, you make something that works, but it, it just doesn't hit the right time. And we, we heard that with we worked it out a few years later with Brilliant Career that there'd been a huge run of male buddy-buddy films. You know, it was yeah, like yeah. the Butch Cassidy era. Yeah. And so having this film... We were over it. With, yeah, people and the journalists and the reviewers were over it. So having this film, which was a woman's story, was really unique. And, of course, you know, obviously having wonderful Judy and I one, mean, yeah, that's wonderful right. Sam. Yeah. Um, and, and they are know, wonderful. Yeah. And also people from overseas are really taken by the Australian landscape. Well, that was at that time too completely unique. They'd never, because they'd only ever th- think of Australia as desert. And, you know, there, I mean, all. The sounds and the, yeah, the but, way it all works. But the, where Michelago was and the, where her, her aunt's house was beautiful, green country right. as well. So, so, yes, that was, so it was, you know, so refreshing. And I have to say that over the years, I've met a lot of um, women journalists who said they saw that film as a young woman and it made them decide to be a writer, which is wonderful. Oh, isn't that inspirational? Yeah. Hi, this is the film director, Gillian Armstrong. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. Women that he's undressed, how has it been received in America? At this point, we're, we're opening in Australia first um, because it is such an Australian story. Um, we're, uh, a number of festivals in America are interested in us, so uh, we're 
um, waiting to hear and to decide. Um, there's a great fest- documentary festival um, in New York. It's interesting. I took it to back to LA and New York to show the, the wonderful people that we found that we interviewed in it, who are many of them in like, you know, Angela Lansbury's 87 and Anne Roth is, they're all still working, by the way. And um, these fantastic 90-year-old Scotty Bowers, um, who was... Um, and Jane Fonda, incredibly generous. Yeah, they're also, I felt like I want to show it to them and be there when when they see it. Yeah, um, because they were, you know, they gave so much of their time and and um, and it was interesting. Um, they were more surprised than Australians have been about the style. You know that we have this slightly surreal style of of telling a lot of the story. They were like. I mean, they liked it. They was said, you know, this is very unusual. Says Anne Roth. You know, and Anne Roth is, um, you know, she's designing the Book of Mormon, and and I mean, she's like a goer, and in in the middle of the New York scene of she would see like the latest in of everything and I was sort of quite surprised that I mean they loved it but they were sort of quite taken back it wasn't what they expected from a documentary oh really because yeah I I I found it really amusing really amusing and uh, not only informative uh, there were many things that came out of that movie for me one of them well yeah yeah yeah. because he he lived like the whole history of the golden age of Hollywood so yeah his life from 32 to 64 as a costume designer and also his uh, his personal life I mean uh, the importance of loyalty Yes. Uh, and stuff of that nature, the the way Cary Grant was so... Uh, I mean, you can understand why Cary Grant was like he was because he crawled out of the primeval slime, effectively, of poverty-stricken London. Yes, so, um, no, he had a terror... I mean, actually, um, we read that, that Ori said the the two most ambitious, most, most ruthless actors that he knew were Cary Grant and Joan Crawford, and he said both of them came from abject poverty. That's right. And, you know, for Kerry Ke- was told that he, when he was six that his mother was dead and then he later on finds her. She, she's in a mental institution. Um, she's been alive all that time and he, you know, finds her when he's a big movie star and he's like late 20s and he, basically his father just moved her off so he could um, remarry. So, I mean, he did have a, a shocking, shocking Life, so you can understand, like the miserly thing and needing to control. That's exactly right, and also the denial of his sexuality. Yes, yeah. Um, which, but but it also tells you that part of the story is so fascinating because it's so revealing about Ori Kelly's mm. courageous nature not not courageous nature, but true nature that he would stand there and be. I am who I am. Yeah, no, that's the thing that Catherine Thompson, the writer, and I felt in the end. Because um, when we first started off, we read all this stuff about, you know, it sounded like he was just this, you know, bitchy um, <laughs> queen. And we thought, well, we don't want to spend 90 minutes with someone like that. But the more we read about him, then we realised, you know, the fights that he had about the integrity of the costume, but also in his private life, that he was someone who who had a real moral compass. That's he, right. And he was also able to have a, a long-term loving relationship. He had uh, the capacity to do that. He did, though. I I wonder if in the end, you know, that I would still think that it it must have been part of his drinking that, you know, I do think that growing up gay in a country town in Australia is, (laughs) you know, I think that that it's such a tough thing and that underneath there was always a self-loathing that 
I think that was that he was fighting against. Um, but especially, you know, if you think about growing up in the twenties, it's still tough now. It's still tough now to feel that you're different. You're but on it, the outside. Yeah. Mm. He had a very loving. Uh, I love the portrayal of his mum too. That was wonderful. That was a clever thing to do. Yes, we'd found um, some uh, letters actually to the Sydney Morning Herald um, during uh, Ori, when, at the peak of his career. We, we, it was reported um, Ori's activities uh, were reported by his mother, um, in, and we thought, well, obviously, Mum's writing. She's Tell the best cheer squad. Yep, yep. She's writing to the editor to say what her son is currently doing. So that we thought, well, obviously they had. And then we know that she, um, the Kayama Historical Society, has a photo of his mother and his his um, drama coach, both on the on the ship going to Beverly Hills to stay oh, okay. with him. So we re- we felt that he definitely had this really strong bond with his mother. And he mm-hmm. came back. I um, mean, his father died, you know, early in his career when he was still in trying to make it in Greenwich Village in New York. Um, but he came back, all his visits back to Australia were to see his mum. And then obviously after she died, he came back less in, in, the, in, the, in the latter years of his life. Mm. He didn't actually live that long, really. No, no. Um, the the, the bottle got him in the end, liver cancer. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. But uh, fascinating story and uh, really grateful that you actually went out of your way to make this story. It was. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm. I'm now. I can like. I can go touring um, as a speaker of the golden age of Hollywood. I've learnt so much. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've got a new career. I have. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me. Pleasure. It's been great fun. Yeah. And that was Gillian Armstrong, and she was talking about uh, her latest film, The Women He's Undressed, about Ori Kelly. And as I said, it is an absolutely amusing film. Uh, Go along to Palace Cinemas and uh, catch up with uh, this latest film. Really good fun. Uh, Coming up next is Published or Not. Uh, Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.